Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, Jono. How are you? I am good. We are back. We are back with our second half of our Nicholas Meyer interview with this episode, uh, what is it, 216, season two, episode 16. That is correct, of The Bullet Catch. Nicholas Meyer, who we both enjoyed immensely. Uh, well, Jim, not just us. Getting lots of positive feedback about it. People seem to enjoy him as much as we did. And uh, also getting the question, how did you get Nicholas Meyer? And I will just take a moment because we also had that question after, how did you get Kreskin? And how yeah. did you get Dick Cavett? And the answer is quite simple. We asked. Yeah. And I will say there's plenty of people we've asked who have said no. Uh, some of them very kindly. Andy Nyman very kindly said, no, I don't think so, guys, but thanks anyway. Other people haven't even responded. But in the case of Nicholas Meyer, he had just published a book and he is set up to talk on Zoom and he had a spare hour and he said, sure. And we were very, very lucky about that. I wish he had had a spare day because I could have stayed there all afternoon chatting with he, last time we talked about Houdini and a little about and a little about Jack Ripper. This time we talk about Sherlock Holmes and Star, Star Trek. Trek. And as my mother used to say, you must have been in hog heaven, Jim. I absolutely was. Uh, he to get a chance to talk because now I'm just going to say something, uh, and you can either let this be part of the podcast or you can just simply edit it out. I could okay. have fixed the original. Star Trek movie over a cup of coffee. I really could have. It was so flawed that I, I could have sat down with him and said, hey, uh, let's do this, this, and this. Well, you're talking about uh, classic director Robert Wise, who had made The Sound of Music, who had made West Side Story, who had edited Citizen Kane and was asked to produce Star Trek, the motion picture. I don't mean to throw stones, but maybe it should have been a musical if the guys... No, hang on. He made The Haunting. He he was an excellent director. He was simply the wrong choice for it. And as Nicholas Meyer pointed out either this week or, or in our last episode, he looked at Star Trek and went, oh, it's Hornblower. I get this. It's a it's a sea adventure. I know those. I used to read those. Right. And that was his approach. Whereas Robert Wise came to it where they kept changing the script and they didn't quite know what they wanted. And there were all these special effects. Yep. So, you know, it they were just really lucky and really smart to get Nicholas Meyer to do the second one. Boy, ain't it the truth. And how you're going to find out in this uh, episode that they didn't have a script. They did not have any idea of what exactly the movie was going to be. And yet they had a release date and they had booked a bunch of theaters for it. So I like that kind of uh, that sort of uh, chutzpah. Well, well, we'll figure it out. Let's just let's just buy some theater time and yeah. we'll, we'll end up with a movie somewhere. And boy, did they end up with a good one. Good movie. Very well. Yes. And they picked the right guy to do it because he really understood that sort of pastiche of the space opera and the sea adventure. And he'd had experiences writing adventures because when you get right down to it his Sherlock Holmes novels are uh, adventures they're not really mysteries they are Sherlock Holmes adventures and he's probably best known for them last time after we finished talking about Houdini we did start talking about Sherlock Holmes and his latest book The Return of the Pharaoh 
it's a mystery, you know, and your books are mysteries. So it, it all fits. It all fits very nicely, except he did scold Jim just a little bit about that book. I had it coming. Let's segue over to Sherlock Holmes, because that's an interest of mine and Jim's. And uh, if it isn't an interest of our audience, they can just shut off right now. And I don't want them part of this podcast because it should be. Have you guys read The Return of the Pharaoh? I have read The Return of the Pharaoh. Jim's trying to get caught up because he's one book behind. Right. So you've read so now, The Adventure of the P- Protocols. That's what yeah. I'm reading right now. Uh, and Oh, you are way behind. You're I one am- into Houdini and you're halfway through The Protocols. What 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 do you do the rest of the time when you're not totally ab- absorbed in my work? <laughs> yes, Saint Saint Paul is a very quiet, uh, bucolic kind of a place, and I uh, lots I, of time. Yeah, I, you're right. I have no excuse. You have no excuse. All. All no, right. no excuse at all. I will say I I've seen Wrath of Khan hundreds. <laughs> of years, if that counts for no, anything. that's too late. I I had a niece, a favorite niece of mine who lives in Minneapolis. And when I when I was touring for the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, I spoke to the Norwegian explorers of Minneapolis, which is the local Sherlock Holmes Society. And I brought Amanda with me to the dinner. That was a lot of fun. There's a lot of Sherlock Holmes interest in the Twin Cities. Larry Millett, who works out of St. Paul, has written a number of pastiches, not unlike yours, putting, but in his case, putting Sherlock Holmes uh, in the Twin Cities. I will admit to my own pastiche, which is called The Greyhound of the Baskervilles, uh, which, which <laughs> is exactly <clears throat> Conan Doyle's book, literally word for word, but just written from the point of view of his pet greyhound, Septimus. But in doing that project and rewriting what I'm guessing I think is his best novel, uh, and then reading your stuff, I kind of prefer your stuff with the exception of Hound of the Baskervilles when it comes to the other Holmes novels. I don't really like them as much because they don't have the same pace and interest and fun stuff the short stories have. But you absolutely captured that voice and you feel more accurate to Doyle to me sometimes than Doyle does. Well, for the benefit of your listeners, there are 60 Sherlock Holmes stories written by Arthur Conan Doyle. 56 of them are short stories and four of them are novellas of which, as you say, The Hound of the Baskervilles may be the best. If we discuss the other ones, A Study in Scarlet, which is the first Sherlock Holmes story that Doyle wrote, he was really feeling his way toward (laughs) immortality. And by the way, Sherlock Holmes was not what he wanted to be remembered for. But he was, he was a doctor. He was waiting for patients to knock on the door. Nobody was showing up. So he started writing stories and submitting them to magazines to make money. And A Study in Scarlet, was, which was published in 1887, was his first Sherlock Holmes story. And it is, for lack of a better term, a kind of a lumpy creation in which the, the two halves of the story are they don't they don't really seem to be related and if like me you're 10 years old when you first read this story or 11 and you're in london and you're trying to solve a murder and the next you turn the page and you're in utah and nobody has the same name and there is no sherlock holmes and as a kid i thought oh the printer has glued the wrong two 
books together. This is a, you know, and then because I'm too lazy to get out of the chair, I just keep reading, right? And then you find, and then it all kind of comes together. The second story, the sign of the four or the sign of four, when it was published in England, they took out the the, which was written under very interesting circumstances. I don't know if your listeners know or care, but on the off chance, I care. The reason there's a second Sherlock Holmes story at all is due to the Americans. The American editor of Lippincott's magazine came to London and took two writers to dinner at the same time and commissioned additional novels from each. The first writer was Arthur Conan Doyle, young Dr. Doyle. He wanted another Sherlock Holmes story. The second writer at the dinner was Oscar Wilde. Wow. This was quite a, I wonder what they ordered. Um, (laughs) And so Doyle wrote The Sign of the Four and Wilde wrote his notorious gay novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And it was very evident from the sign of the four that Doyle, who must have been simply awestruck by sitting at a dinner with Oscar Wilde, who was at that time the most famous English writer, even though he was Irish, and had written all these plays that were running and his famous for his wit and his sort of flamboyant gay personality, even though he He couldn't acknowledge it because it was against the law. But when Doyle wrote the character of of Bartholomew and Thaddeus Sholto, they were clearly modeled on Oscar Wilde. So that dinner made a deep impression. The other thing that the sign of the four did for me personally was to get me interested in the Indian mutiny of 1857, which is more or less where the book sort of opens. And I had never heard of the Indian mutiny. Again, I'm 12 years old, never heard of anything. But it was what he was describing was so horrific that I became lifelong fascinated with India and its whole subject. And eventually, I got to direct The Deceivers for Merchant Ivory with Pierce Brosnan. So The Sign of the Four, I think, is a pretty successful novella. And it's got a high-speed motorboat chase down the Thames. It's got savages with blowguns. It's got a lot of cool stuff. The third novella, The Valley of Fear, is an entirely true story. And that has to do with a vigilante pre-union group of coal miners in the Pennsylvania coal fields in 1875, who were called or called themselves the Molly Maguires. In the novel, they're called The Scourers. But there is a great movie, a great movie called The Molly Maguires with Sean Connery and Richard Harris and Frank Finlay, Samantha Egger, written by Walter Bernstein, who just died age 100 and I don't know what, and directed by Martin Ritt, who directed HUD and Norma Ray. It was the last movie photographed by the great Chinese-American cameraman James Wong Howe. And it's the whole story of the Valley of Fear in which the Molly Maguires are called the Scourers. And then, of course, there's the Hound of the Baskerville. But Doyle never really managed, with the exception of the Hound of the Baskerville, to write a full-length Holmes adventure. They were always in flashback parts. 
Whereas I think that my five or six Holmes novels are always full length stories. So yay for me. I'm just taking notes here. Now I've got Enigma and the Molly Maguires on my list of uh, things to see, which have uh, somehow escaped my notice until this moment. But I think the Molly Maguires is one of Sean Connery's greatest performances yeah. and, and also Richard Harris. I praise for both of them. Yeah, that the Rit Bernstein pairing put to, they put together a lot of great movies. Those two guys together. Yes, they did, and also the Ravages and the Front. Oh, the Front, is which is yeah, which is terrific. Getting back to Holmes, I think you mentioned in your memoir in passing that when you did Seven Percent Solution, there was some back and forth with the Doyle estate. We Jim and I have a friend Jeff Hatcher who wrote the screenplay for Mr. Holmes, which was based on a book, which uh, once the movie came out, did run into some issues with the Doyle estate because the writer had taken some characteristics of Holmes from later books, which weren't. It's all, it's all bullshit. All that is bullshit. The, the, the Doyle estate, which was once the richest literary estate in the world, was run into the ground by his descendants and their in-laws. And they don't care anything about Sherlock Holmes. All they care about is money. And what they try to do is to stick up movie companies and book companies and say, you've got to pay. And back when Holmes legitimately fell into copyright, which is when I wrote the 7% solution, yes, I had to pay. And I understood that. I mean, I didn't understand it when I wrote the book because I was a kid. But I understood it when it was explained to me. What since happened is they continue, even though he's out of copyright, to try to pretend that he is or that one or two stories are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My friend, Les Klinger, who is a business manager, but also happens to be a lawyer and a Holmes enthusiast, took the estate to court and won. He broke that bullshit stranglehold that they were trying to exercise on anybody who wanted to write or create or make a movie about Holmes. Now, it's also true that big companies like Warner Brothers or Paramount or something, if they make a Sherlock Holmes movie and the Doyle estate comes sniveling to their door, find it cheaper to say, here's $10,000, go away, than it is to bother to do what Les did, which was take him to court. It's just... It's blackmail. It's you've all seen The Godfather. You know, give me a little something to wet my beak uh, is what this is all about. I have nothing good to say about them. And what they did with Mr. Holmes, your your friend's movie, was they waited until the movie was about to come out before they hit him. Um, Jim, I should mention you probably don't know this that, uh, and this is the truth. The man we're talking to is the man for whom the thing at the beginning of a DVD that says the, the opinions expressed here are not those of this company. He's the reason that's on DVDs. Is that right? Yes, I will explain because I'm very proud of it. <laughs> I've made a couple of contributions to civilization. One of them is the movie The Day After, it's my yes. nuclear war movie. And the other is this little sign. And it, it happened when they were preparing the DVD release of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And 
I was interviewed and asked to explain my contributions to the making the movie, the script, the directing, et cetera. So I, I told the story about how I came to write the script. And the DVD lady, who subsequently became a very good friend of mine, said, gee, the lawyers say we can't use any of what you told us. And I said, and why is that? And they said Paramount was worried about getting in trouble with the Writers Guild because you are not credited as the author and you wrote this sort of under the table, the script. And I said, well, why don't you just take me out of the whole DVD? Because if I can't tell the truth about it, I don't want to be in it. And she said, that's what I hoped you would say. Now I've got some ammo. So she went back and she came back and she said, okay, here's the deal. And the deal now applies to every studio. The opinions expressed in this interview are not those of Paramount Pictures, its employees or affiliates, whatever. What this does is it stops those interviews from being bullshit puff pieces and allows them to become oral histories. Now, different people may have different oral histories of the same thing. You put them all on the DVD, but suddenly you've opened up a whole world to telling things that really happened or that the tellers think really happened or are their opinions without the studio worried that they're going to be sued because of that little disclaimer. And, and they all have that now. Yep. And that's my contribution. Well, that's great. Now I promised John before this interview that I would not talk uh, Star Trek with you, but since you've opened the door a little bit here, <laughs> now that you say that you wrote Wrath of Khan under the table, can, can you just flesh that out for me? It might not ever be in the podcast, but I'm a, an incredible Star Trek fan. So I'm interested in this story. Well, very quickly, I knew nothing about Star Trek when I met Harv Bennett, the producer of what was going to be the second Star Trek movie. And he showed me the first movie. He showed me some of the episodes. And I got kind of jonesed to make an outer an outer space, a space opera. And I realized once I started to familiarize myself with Captain Kirk, that he he reminded me of Captain Hornblower, which was the books by C.S. Forrester that I read when I was a kid about a captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars who had adventures and a girl in every port, which sounded good to me. <laughs> um, I was 12. And it was 13 or something. And so I thought, oh, this is this is Hornblower in outer space. This is destroyers. This is submarines. So I made a deal with Paramount and Harv Bennett to direct a Star Trek movie for them, which was going to be their second movie. And Harv said, draft five of the script is coming in. So I went home and waited for draft five. And you know, I looked up and it was three or four weeks later and wondered whatever happened because I, I was starting to think about spaceships and stuff like that. And he said, oh, I, I can't send you the, the script. It's not good. I, I can't send. I said, well, what about draft four, draft three, whatever? And he said, you don't understand. All these different drafts are simply separate attempts to get another Star Trek movie. They're unrelated. And I said, well, send them all to me. I want to, I want to read them. And he said, really? I said, yeah. And in those days you didn't hit send a truck drove up <laughs> like a, a van and it, and it had a lot of scripts and I'm a very slow reader. And I sat and I read all these scripts and 
Then I said, why don't you and your producing partner, Robert Salem, come up to my house and let's have a chat about this because I have an idea. And so they showed up and I had my ubiquitous legal pad. And I said, why don't we make a list of everything we like in these five scripts? It could be a major plot. It could be a subplot. It could be a sequence. It could be a scene. It could be a character. It could be a line of dialogue. I don't care. Let's just make the list. And then I'll try to write a new screenplay that incorporates as many of these elements as we pick. And they didn't look happy. And I, I thought, well, I don't get a lot of ideas. And this was, this was my idea. And I said, what's wrong with, what, what, what's wrong with that? And uh, they said, well, the problem is that if we don't have a screenplay within 12 days, Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects house for the movie, say they can't deliver the shots in time for the June opening. And I said, what June opening? You know, I'd only directed one movie in my life. And I said, they, and these guys had booked the theaters for a, for a movie that didn't exist. And I said, well, okay, okay. I, I'll try to do this in 12 days, but we, we got to pick the stuff now. And they still weren't happy. And I said, so what, what, what is it? What's, what's the problem? And they said, well, you know, let's be honest. We couldn't even make your deal in 12 days. And at this point, I was like foaming at the mouth. I said, look, guys, forget the deal. Forget the money. Forget the credit. I'm not talking about directing. We've already got that signed, sealed, and delivered. But if we don't do this now, there's going to be no movie. Yes or no? You know, and I was an idiot because I, at that point, gave away, you know, what turned out to be significant. So I didn't invent Kirk meets his son. I didn't invent Khan. I didn't invent Savick. I didn't invent the Genesis plan. I didn't invent any of those things. I just took them and played with them like a Rubik's cube and poured my, essentially it's all my dialogue from yeah. Harv, Harv wrote a, a few lines, but I, I wrote most of it. Well, it certainly worked. Oh boy. Every, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, uh, and I, I will not bring up the undiscovered country because I promised John I wouldn't. But we need to get back to Holmes. Yeah, that was it. Let's get back to Holmes. But Nick, you held up the yellow legal pad in in the memoir. You mentioned that that's how you wrote the first Holmes. Are are all the Holmes books still written out by hand first? Parts of them, maybe, and certainly notes of them. Of the okay. one I'm working on now, there's a lot of dates and chronologies and stuff uh, written down to make sure I've got something right how what concerned are you I, with with the with the homes chronology and the timeline yeah, that's that's a great question that's what, what i was going to ask too is uh, how how much of that how are you trying to stay within the sort oh of, yes yeah absolutely i play the game when i when i wrote the seven percent solution and i was i think 26 or 27 when i wrote it i have hardly seen a homes movie that i didn't despise um i just don't like them I don't like a lot of the imitations that I've read, sorry, because I didn't think, um, I, I guess in this area and probably this area only, I am an arch conservative. I want my Doyle straight. I like it in the books and I want the books to read like Doyle. It made me crazy to see Nigel Bruce as Watson. I just didn't understand why a genius hangs out with a jerk. And that portrayal didn't make sense as the narrator of those stories. I just couldn't fit it. 
So when I started to write the 7% solution, I was very concerned with staying in the chronology and getting as many of the Doyle-Watson details right, even to Watson's mistakes, because he makes a lot of them, because Doyle couldn't be bothered. This was not important stuff to him. Uh, His historical novels, his science fiction, that was the important stuff. But for me, it was all important. When I started writing or trying to write the 7% solution, I was doing it on a Smith Corona portable electric, which is what I owned. And it didn't, it didn't come out like Doyle. And that's when I switched to longhand because that's how he had done it. Now I can, I think, or I tell myself I can do it on a computer. The 7% solution is very interesting. You took one thing and you extrapolated out from that an entire uh, kind of reality about homes that had not been explored. And it's similar to kind of what your father did with Houdini. And I I just, did did that ever occur to you that there was, there's a, a, you know, a similarity there somehow? Well, I did 7% before he did Houdini. That's. that's So he owes you then. Oh yeah. Big time. (laughs) It's interesting. I, I was not the first person to put together Holmes and Freud. In fact, Freud knew that he'd been compared to Holmes. Freud loved to read Sherlock Holmes stories. That was his bedtime reading. And at some point he even wrote in one of his case histories, I followed the labyrinth of her mind, Sherlock Holmes-like until it led me to. So he, he knew about this comparison. And there was a doctor at Yale, famous psychiatrist, drug expert, who wrote a paper that my father gave me to read about Holmes, Freud, and the cocaine connection, because Holmes is a cocaine user, and for a time, so was Freud. And when my book came out and was the number one best-selling novel in the United States for 40 weeks, I got sued by this doctor at Yale for plagiarism. This is like the first successful thing I'd ever done in my life. And this guy was saying I ripped him off because he was probably walking across campus and people were saying, hey, doc, hey, professor, that guy guy in the New York Times, he ripped you off. So I got sued. This is how you know you're a hit is when you get (laughs) sued. Uh, But I was devastating to me. It was devastating and it was expensive because I had to defend myself. I had a lawyer and the lawyer said, they have no case. We will ask for something called summary judgment. And I said, does that mean we have to wait till July? And he goes, no, no, no. It's not about, that. I couldn't resist. Summary um, judgment. Summary judgment. Yeah, it has to happen in the yeah. summertime. Summary judgment turns out to mean that the facts of the case are not in dispute. No one can dispute that I read his essay. I put it in my acknowledgments. I thanked him for it. I read it. The question is, what is the definition of plagiarism? It turns out you cannot copyright an idea. You can only copyright the expression of an idea. The words. I hadn't used his words. I hadn't used any of his words. I didn't write an academic paper. I wrote a novel. I wrote a story. So I won. And then he appealed. And I won again. End of story. So it's, uh, you know, it didn't originate with me. Nothing originates with me. Moby Dick was based on another whale. Emma Bovary was a real person. 
on and on and on. That's a theme we keep coming back to. Yeah, really. I was blown away by the amount of detail in The Return of the Pharaoh. And I'm guessing you must have had stacks of yellow legal pads with notes. The Return of the Pharaoh originated with a suggestion by my longtime friend and agent who said, what about homes in Egypt? Mm. And, and yes, there was an enormous amount of research done in about four different areas. One, ancient Egypt, because this is about a search for a, a missing pharaoh's tomb. Two, the turn of the 20th century Egypt, the Egypt that Holmes and Watson find themselves in when they go looking for a, a missing archaeologist, a missing nobleman. Three, some medical information pertaining to Watson's wife and her illness. And we're talking about 1910, 1911, in that area. In addition to sort of local Egyptian you know, information, whether we're talking about the Ottoman Empire, the British dominance, the importance of the Suez Canal and so forth. It certainly helped that I was in Egypt in 1979 for, I don't know, a week or so. And I had been in Alexandria. I had been in Cairo. I had crawled up the robber's entrance in the Great Pyramid, which, as I say, is not an exercise for the faint of heart because it's very narrow and it's very dark and there's no turning around because there isn't room and there are people behind you. And I asked myself halfway up, what was I doing? But I just thought, well, I have to do this. It was a very claustrophobic moment in the book, and I'm glad that I only had to read about it I'm, and not do I'm, it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I managed to convey it. The Kamsin, the big sandstorm, I read about these sand, sandstorms, and I decided, you know, we needed one in the, in the story. So this particular one is invented out of whole cloth. I just made it up. But I, but, uh, and by the way, as, I, as it says in the book, the real ones could last over a month and mine just lasts, you know, like 24 hours or mm -hmm. something. But yeah, I learned about that stuff and you do a lot of reading, uh, a lot of reading. I have whole shelves full of information on the various books and movies that I've written about. Books are a mania. If I'm at your house and we're having a conversation and there's a bookshelf behind you, chances are, and I apologize in advance, I, I won't be looking at you while we're talking. I'll be looking yeah, yeah. over your shoulder to see what you got. It's a disease. No. It's interesting. We we started, we're going to wrap up now because we've taken up way too much of your time, but we did start with, with Houdini and we're ending with Holmes. But we one of the first things we talked about was the, the title card at the beginning of the Houdini miniseries. What you're about to see is fact. It's also fiction. We defy you to tell the difference. And, and that's, I'm learning now from Return of the Pharaoh, you're still doing that. You're taking fact, you're taking fiction. And like you did with Wrath of Khan, you're going, I like this and I like that and I like this and I like that. And I'm going to make them all work, which is... Uh, well, that's what E.L. Doctorow did in Ragtime. You know, uh, it's what his, we call them historical novels. If you read a history or a biography, you understand that in good faith, efforts have been made to lay out the facts. But when you read a historical novel, you understand that the facts have been mushed around and dramatized, that the author has assumed the dramatist's privilege, his prerogative to help things along. 
there's an Italian phrase, sinone vero e ben trovato. If it, it didn't happen that way, it should have. <laughs> uh, give you another example. Queen Elizabeth I and her cousin and rival, Mary Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth subsequently had beheaded, never met. In real life, they never met. But of all the 4,622 movies, plays, operas, novellas, ballets, blah, 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 they always meet yeah. because it ain't cool if they don't meet. Right. It's a better story. Yeah. It's a better story. Can I take just a few more seconds to have, have you tell us one more story because I love it. And it's one that only you can tell because you're the only one on this podcast and one of the few people in the world who's had a Thanksgiving dinner with Albert Einstein. Can you tell us what happened at that meal? We ate turkey. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, well, I, all right. Oh, uh, uh, you want more? My, my father had three sisters, the middle of whom was married to a man named Harold Chernus. Harold Chernus, Chernus, no teeth was the most famous Hellenist in the world, which means an expert on ancient Greece, things ancient Greek. He was the editor of the Harvard Loeb Plutarch. He was the author of Aristotle's criticism of Plato and the Academy. He was, I believe, the second PhD in Sanskrit. He was the Sanskrit teacher at Berkeley of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. At the end of the Second World War, Oppenheimer became the head of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where Einstein was. And Oppenheimer invited my uncle and my aunt, my father's sister, to come to the Institute, where they spent the last 30-some-odd years of their life at a house on 98 Battle Road. And we lived in New York City. And Thanksgiving on different occasions would happen at our house, at another sister's house in uh, White Plains or Katona outside New York City, or at the other sister's house in Princeton. And at that, those dinners, I think there were two of them. And, you know, mind you, you're talking to someone who is like seven or eight years old. So what I remember about this is not necessarily accurate. For example, I, I remember that there were two dinners over successive years. Maybe it was one. I don't know. I uh, can't remember. I think it was two. And at these dinners were my uncle, my aunt, my father, my mother, Erwin Panofsky, who was the most famous iconologist in the world, Albert Einstein, I was seated next to him on at least one occasion, J. Robert Oppenheimer, his wife, Kitty, and their daughter, who I think's name was Tony, I think. And the story that I was told, because I don't remember this, was that sitting next to Einstein, I said something like, I have a hair in my turkey. And Einstein said, not so loud, everyone else will want one. So it ends with an Einstein story. This is, I got to tell you, the only podcast probably ever to mention in one interview, and let me know if I miss anybody here, Arthur Conan Doyle, Oscar Wilde, Sean Connery, our friend Jeff Hatcher, Star Trek, Freud, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Albert Einstein, and of course, the Rubik's Cube. Uh, how about Oppenheimer? There's somebody you didn't mention. The guy who invents the atomic bomb is having Thanksgiving dinner with Nicholas Meyer. Holy crap, what a deal. Yeah, that's uh, pretty amazing. And it's, it's, I think, part of 
uh, his ability to to write the way he writes is that he was brought up in a really eclectic uh, surrounding, which with his father's interests and his mother's interests. And uh, he, he just has a wide ranging set of interests and is able to draw from them uh, on the Sherlock Holmes books, which, as I mentioned in the interview, I'm, I like his novels better than the Conan Doyle novels, with the exception of uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. I know the Sherlock Holmes purists will yell at me for that. Uh, but as he said, that he's, he really gained his reputation more on the short stories than he did on the novels. And even, and even he was, you know, didn't have a lot to say about a couple of them. Did you ever make it? Did you finish Return of the Pharaoh? Uh, I have not gotten to Return of the Pharaoh. I'm just wrapping up uh, the, the initial book. I read. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. That You hadn't gotten to it because you were reading one before it. But there's so many of them. And I didn't even know they were out there. I've read all of the Larry Millet books that you mentioned, you know, uh, local St. Paul author. Sherlock Holmes comes to our nape of the neck, neck mm-hmm. of the wave. And I've read all those. I just didn't know Nicholas Meyer had all of these. And he does. And I will just say for anyone who is a big Sherlock Holmes fan and has already finished all the Nick Meyer ones, definitely pick up the Larry Millet books. They're really fun. Or if yeah. you like audiobooks, our friend Steve Hendrickson has done a fabulous job of recording, I believe, all of Larry's books as audiobooks, as well as uh, recording my own, The Greyhound of the Baskervilles, in which uh, he did a really great job. Not that Jim Cunningham couldn't have done it, but Jim was very busy at the time. So, and, and really, uh, Steve, perfect choice for that. He's, he really has found that niche and can do that. G-E-N-I-U-S. Genius is what Steve is. Yeah. He's, he's very, very good at that. Now, we also, in addition to talking about Sherlock Holmes, we got to hear the story behind the making of uh, the script for The Wrath of Khan. You're welcome, everybody. You are welcome. That would not have happened had, had I not yeah. done it. I was told uh, going into this interview that I was not allowed really to talk Star Trek with him. Because um, he didn't want to. His publicist yeah, said he's, he's covered that. He's covered that. Yeah, he doesn't want to talk about Star Trek, but but he was kind enough to talk about it with us. And he sort of cracked that door and I just went through it like a bull elephant. It just, uh, I couldn't help myself. So I apologize, but I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I, you know, if you'd put a gun to my head before that and said, who wrote Wrath of Khan? I would have said with all the certainty in the world, Nicholas Meyer wrote and directed the Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Uh, And apparently he's not credited because of the way things happen there and has he explained. But to be that clever and to take all those pieces and to string them together the way he did and make it one cohesive thing, uh, you know, that's just a a testament to what Nicholas Meyer can do. There are so many great lines in it, but my favorite is Kirk saying after all of the horrible things that they're now marooned on the Genesis planet, (laughs) Kirk saying... Is there anything to eat? I'm starving. <laughs> it's, it's like, that's so perfect. Uh, yeah. uh, anyway, so yeah. much fun to talk to him. However, our mandate here, uh, when yes. we're done talking to Nick Meyer, is to uh, read the next chapter of a much lesser uh, series of books. In this case, chapter 16 of The Bullet Catch. Uh, if They're not the lesser. You, people are enjoying these. Let's not yes. uh, disparage your work. It, uh, it's good stuff. Anyway, let's just quickly recap where we yeah, are. Can bring us up to date here? Sure. Uh, in uh, chapter 15, there's a lot of chat with Harry. Harry's starting up uh, what turned out to be a little bit of a relationship with Franny. We spent some time on the movie set. Uh, Eli has to come up with a new method for the bullet catch. And it turns out not only does he need to do a new method for it, but when they roll film, it'll be Eli playing the guy who shoots 
the bullet, which brings us right up to chapter 16. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 16. This new plan required an immediate meeting with the producers, Donna and Arnold. Huddled in the tented area that housed the video monitors, video village as it was referred to by the crew, Walter outlined his plan for a new ending sequence for the movie that, in his mind, would put it on the cinematic map. It will be one continuous shot, he said breathlessly, taking us from the beginning of the trek through each of the steps right through to the final fatal blast. I noticed Jake wince a bit at Walter's choice of words, but he nodded along with the producers while the director made his impassioned pitch. Not since Children of Man has the cinema been graced with such a minutely choreographed set piece. Goodfellas, The Player, Touch of Evil, those are the films that will be mentioned in the same hushed tones as our film. He stepped back and looked at them one at a time. We have the choice here, people, to make a movie or to make art. I, for one, vote for art. It will cost money that we don't have, Arnold said slowly. I'll cut my feet, Walter said. In half, Donna ventured. By a third. How about your points? He shook his head. Points demonstrate my commitment to this project. Points are sacred. Arnold and Donna exchanged a look. Give us a minute to talk about it. They retired to a corner of the tent and began to confer quietly. Walter turned to us and clapped his hands together gleefully. This is gonna be sweet, he said with a giggle. Jake offered a half-hearted smile. A thought occurred to me. Walter, I began. Magic man, speak, he replied dramatically. You know a lot about movies, right? Trivia and stuff? There is nothing about the cinema that is trivial, he said continuing to intone his words. But yes, I'm a fount of useless information about movies. Great, I said, trying to think of the right way to phrase the question. In the world of movies, what do you think of when you hear the name Francis? Easy. Francis Farmer. Brilliant actress. Tortured soul. I considered this. Anything else come to mind around the name Francis? Francis McDormand. Also... Brilliant, much less tortured. What about on the male side of the equation? He thought about this for a long moment. Well, Francis Ford Coppola, of course, great filmmaker, great winemaker, could have retired after The Godfather and still been considered one of the best. Although, he added thoughtfully, then we would not have experienced the stunning perfection of the conversation. He continued to ponder my question and was about to add to his list when Donna approached with Arnold two steps behind. Here's our offer. Reduce your fee by one-third, shave two days off the schedule, cut the helicopter shot, and we've got a deal. Walter took a deep intake of breath, and his hand shot to his mouth at the mention of the helicopter shot. He stood very still for several seconds. Somewhere, I swear, I could hear a clock ticking. Finally, he exhaled. You got a deal. And I've got my shot. Let's put it on paper with blood. 
The three headed toward the motorhome that housed the production office, Walter talking excitedly. Jake exchanged a look with me, and I nodded. Before I could comment, Walter turned and yelled back at me. Oh, Magic Man, I forgot one, maybe the best one. When you're talking about old movies, the most famous Francis is a real ass. He's better known as Francis the Talking Mule. Filming shut down for the day in order for Walter and his team to put together the components of their big finale. Before I left, I promised him I'd come back with another method for the bullet catch. The moment I said it, I realized I'd have to do it without Harry's help, as I had come to learn that there was no greater enemy of the bullet catch than Harry Marks. As I made my way across the barren field that served as the Renaissance Festival parking lot, I pulled out my wallet, searching for a business card I hoped I'd saved. I wasn't watching where I was going as I sorted through the various receipts and small denomination bills that make up the desolate interior of my wallet. Consequently, I was taken aback when a foppish scarecrow suddenly lurched in front of me. Eli, the scarecrow hissed in a failed attempt at a stage whisper. I yelped and jumped back, jamming my foot in a rut and nearly twisting my ankle. After a sharp grunt of pain, I finally steadied myself and looked toward where he had just been standing. There was no one in sight. Hello? I asked tentatively. Eli! The voice hissed again. I followed the sound and turned to see the scarecrow cowering behind the Ford Fiesta was none other than Clive Albans. He was dressed in his typical potpourri fashion, wild mix of stripes and checks and polka dots with a madcap bouquet of colors sprinkled liberally throughout the ensemble. His eyes peered toward the main gate and then back at me. Is it safe? I looked around, not seeing any threats on the horizon. It appears to be safe, I said slowly. I must take precautions. I am persona non grata on these premises, I fear, he said. Apparently, there are some who took offense at my article. You mean the article that ruined the mystery the movie is based on? Yes, that's the one, he said nodding and missing all the hints of sarcasm I had ladled onto my statement. I was told in no uncertain terms to go and never darken their door again, so to speak. Then why are you here? He rose up to his full, lanky height and leaned one long arm against the hood of the car, concluding the move with a prolonged, dramatic sigh. Oh, Eli, it's show business. How can I resist? He scanned the horizon again and, convinced the coast was clear, lunged forward and was suddenly in my face. Is there any dirt? He asked breathlessly. Any juicy gossip? Clive, after what you've done, what makes you think I'd stand out here and dish dirt with you? Because you're my brother, he said emphatically, mercifully taking a full step back. What? Metaphorically, at least. We're in the brotherhood together, you and I. What brotherhood would that be? Show business, dear boy. The business of show. I pushed past him and continued across the field toward my car, taking care to put as little weight as possible on my throbbing ankle. I've got nothing to say to you. Oh, don't pout, he yelled after me. No one likes a pouter. My answer took the form of me getting into my car slamming the door 
and spewing not nearly as much dirt and grass as I would have liked as I gunned the engine. Give Harry a hug for me, he said. Then he disappeared across the field. The search through my wallet had yielded the desired item, Roger Edison's business card. I gave him a call and he said it would be fine to drop by the office any time. I was quick to explain I wouldn't be coming in to buy insurance, just to talk. That's okay, he said, chuckling over the phone. I once sold $500,000 in life insurance to a guy who just came in to get changed for the bus. So we shall see. Roger's address put him in an office park near the Mall of America. So at the point where Highway 169 intersected Highway 494, I took the exit and headed east. The office park consisted of a handful of seemingly identical two- and three-story buildings just off the freeway. The small lot in front of Roger's building was full, so I parked in front of a matching building across the street. As I walked back toward Roger's office, I noticed two blue-shirted maintenance men were standing by the large flagpole which stood majestically in front of the building. They were looking up the pole, and I followed their gaze up and up to where a flag drooped sadly. The flag had evidently become twisted and tangled, and their efforts of tugging on the rope that raised and lowered the flag appeared to be having little effect. I bet I'm going to have to climb that damn pole again, said a voice behind me. I turned to see another maintenance man in a blue work shirt that matched the others striding along. The name patch on his shirt read, Doug. Climb the pole, I said. Once it gets tangled up like it is now, that's usually the only solution. As we walked, I looked up at the pole, which was probably close to three stories high. Even before my panic attacks, I wouldn't have relished the thought of climbing it. But now the very thought of it tightened my stomach. And I wasn't comforted by the fact that my very out-of-shape 30-something body was probably physically incapable of getting more than 10 feet off the ground. The guys at the base of the pole tugged ineffectually at the ropes, and Doug, probably sensing they were making things worse, broke into a trot. Wish me luck, he yelled over his shoulder as he headed toward the pole. I gave him a weak wave and then headed up the sidewalk to Roger's building. Of course, it wasn't really Roger's building. His was just one of the many businesses listed on the directory in the foyer. An indoor waterfall filled one wall of the lobby, and I had the option of using the sweeping staircase or the elevator to go up the one floor to his office. Given my recent history with heights and railings, I opted for the elevator. Can I get you a coffee or a soft drink? His smiling receptionist asked once I had explained why I was there. I thanked her, said I was fine, and went to grab a seat. But before I could pick a magazine to peruse, Roger bounded out of his office with an outstretched hand. Eli, twice in two weeks? We'll have to stop meeting like this. Thanks for seeing me on such short notice. What other kind is there nowadays? Hold all my calls, he said over his shoulder as he ushered me into his office. Yeah, whatever, the receptionist said, and from my new vantage point, I could see she was deeply involved in checking her Facebook page. My niece is filling in as my receptionist this summer before heading off to college, he explained as he pulled a chair up to the small table at one end of his office. She's great in client-facing situations, but she seems to harbor a built-in resentment for management. Workers of the world unite, I said as I sat down. First talk of unionizing and she's back to babysitting. Sal, what brings you in today? He held up his right hand. No selling, I promise. 
Spot Dylan LaSalle, I said, and Roger's face shifted effortlessly from light and jovial to serious and concerned. A terrible tragedy, Roger said. No one ever expects crime to hit so close to home. I nodded. I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about this, I continued, but Trish was surprised Dylan had taken out such a large life insurance policy. I mean, without telling her. But again, I added, I don't want to get you in trouble talking about this. Eli, Roger said, patting me paternally on the arm. This isn't like attorney-client privilege. I sold the guy some insurance. It's not a state secret. I mean, I've already talked to the police about it, so what's the harm in talking to you? They've already questioned you? One of their guys came by yesterday. Was it homicide detective Fred Hutton by any chance? Roger turned his chair and consulted a business card on his desk. It sure was, he said, holding the card up for me to see. And what's the deal with him anyway? It's like Joe Friday without the sense of humor. Homicide detective Fred Hutton had a charmectomy. Roger smiled at the image. Well, surgery was successful. Looks like they got it all. So they asked you about the policy and the double indemnity clause? Roger nodded. They were all over it. I pulled my files and walked them through the whole thing. It was a very traditional policy, nothing special. Dylan did ask if it had a double indemnity clause, but he also asked a lot of other questions, so it didn't seem out of place at the time. Did anything seem out of place? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it did, but I didn't remember it until after the cops left, and then I figured there might have been nothing to it. I spread my hands, waiting for him to continue. When I was filling out the paperwork, he said, I was asking him all the traditional questions, date of birth, social security, address, all that. And when I got to the part where I fill in the name of the beneficiary, I asked him if I should put in Trisha's name, and he said the oddest thing. He said, sure, why not? For now. For now? Roger nodded. Anyway, he signed everything, passed the physical, and the policy went into effect. I got my commission and didn't give it another thought. I sat back in my chair, not quite sure what to do with this information. Always the professional conversationalist, Roger kept things rolling. It's all pretty weird about Howard Washburn, huh? You knew Howard? For a moment, I wasn't making the connection. Sure, we all did. We went to high school together. I shook my head. I know, I just can't place him. Well, to be fair, Howard didn't really stand out. I only remember him because he was one of my first customers. You sold him insurance too? Roger leaned in. Eli, I sold him a ton of insurance, way more than he needed. I still feel sort of bad about it. I asked the obvious question. Then why'd you do it? Roger shrugged. I was brand new to the insurance business and wet behind the ears. I was making cold calls to everyone and his brother trying to make some sales. I started paging through the yearbook and saw some likely candidates. Howard was the first person to give me any sort of positive response on the phone, so I arranged a meeting with him to talk about insurance. How'd that go? Man, I still remember it, even though it was years ago. I guess you always remember your first. <laughs> he gave a slightly risque laugh, then continued. We met for lunch at Liquor Lyle's. I'd never had much to do with Howard in school, but I was immediately struck with his need to, I don't know, fit in, be part of the in crowd. There was nothing I put on the table that day he wasn't interested in buying, and I was happy to sell it. 
What was she like? Roger thought about this for a long moment. The key thing I remember about him was he wasn't memorable, if that makes any sense. I nodded. That's exactly how I remember him. It was sort of, I don't know, sad, Roger said. But there was another quality I noticed at the time. I couldn't really put it into words, but he seemed like a guy who could easily tip. What do you mean, like more than 20%? Roger smiled and shook his head. No, tip, like to one side or the other. I don't want to use dramatic terms, like go over to the dark side, but in his desperate need to please, I think it would have been very easy to screw with his moral compass, to tip him in whatever direction you wanted him to go. Roger sat up and his big smile returned to his face. Enough of the armchair psychology, he said. Eli, is there anything else I can do for you? Yes, one more question, I said as I stood up, sensing I had taken up enough of his time. Who benefited from all the insurance you sold Howard? I haven't looked at the policies in a while, but I'm guessing it would be his wife, Sylvia. I was about to ask a question, but he shook his head and answered it before I could get it out. No, she didn't go to school with us. Howard stumbled into that blonde bramble bush in college. God help him. You want her number? Given his description of her, I wasn't so sure I did, but I nodded and thanked him. Roger went three rounds with his niece and then finally got her to print out the contact information. Upon leaving Roger's building, I was surprised to see an ambulance was parked by the flagpole, the lights on its roof flashing red and blue. From where I stood, I could see two EMTs were just loading someone into the back. He turned to look at me, and I recognized Doug, the cheerful maintenance guy. His right arm had a seriously long and ugly gash in it, which one of the EMTs was hastily wrapping with what appeared to be yards and yards of gauze. I looked up at the pole. The flag was straightened out and flapping freely in the breeze. I followed the rope down the pole, picturing how Doug had finished his work and probably slid down, perhaps gaining speed as he did, and then I saw the vertical cleat that was used to wrap the spare rope. One of the remaining maintenance guys was wiping blood off of it, and I realized Doug's arm and the cleat must have intersected at great speed and proved to be a hindrance to his journey. Small adjustment to his right, and it might have gone through one leg or the other or everything in between. As the ambulance roared away, its siren blaring, I was reminded of our short conversation and was struck by a persistent, nagging thought. I probably should have wished him luck when I had the chance. Ah, yeah, it's a good chapter there. Well, right thank there. you. Thank you. You know, uh, meeting with Roger Edison, I, I may have mentioned it before, but I'm just going to say it again. All the suspect names in this book came from high schools and junior highs in the Twin Cities, including uh, Edison, North, Henry, Washburn. Some Some of these are just, some of these jokes are just for me. When you've heard yours, feel free to leave. I think that's a Stephen Wright line. I'm sorry I quoted it, but I've also given credit, so I feel that's fine. So this is just great. What's the? Can you tell me because I'm the last to know. Generally, right before the audience finds stuff out, I find stuff out. Uh, what's What's the next one in the uh, podcast series about? Well, we we enjoyed this little foray into the world of Nicholas Meyer. Well, now we're going to go back to our theme, the theme we've had all season: how to build a better magician. 
And our interview is with a guy who has built or helped to build a lot of magicians, first in the Twin Cities and now because of the internet uh, internationally, a guy named Tyler Erickson. Oh, that's great. Tyler is a, a terrific magician and a wonderful teacher, has helped me on numerous occasions um, with the uh, magic shows that I have been involved with. He's a terrific guy, a uh, great Minnesotan and um, a wonderful magician and teacher. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great interview. And then continuing that theme of uh, building a better magician and also keeping it local, uh, yeah, the following episode after that will be a return visit from our good friend Suzanne the Magician. Ah, yeah, and Suzanne is back to talk specifically about how she learned magic from the great Al Schneider and how the one and only Eugene Berger encouraged her to become a teacher as well. Yeah, very interesting. Really, in fact, uh, we've already recorded that one. And I believe at one point in the interview, you say, Suzanne, I've known you for 15 years. I've never heard that story before. Yeah, right. That's it for uh, this episode, episode 216. We got links in the show notes to Nicholas Meyer's website, uh, where you can take a look at all the impressive list of Sherlock Holmes books he has written. Including the latest, The Return of the Pharaoh, which is next on my bedside table. Yeah, it's really good. Anyway, check out the show notes, uh, rate and review us. And if you want to subscribe, normally Jim asks you to subscribe, but I'm thinking maybe you're you're intimidated by him. So I'll ask. Go ahead and subscribe. Jim, you're very intimidating. intimidating than oh, my goodness. I'm terrified of you. All right. That's it for 216. We'll see you next time with Tyler Erickson. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Oh, I should hit record. Oh, son of a... This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening.